Now we are going to direct our attention to the Word of God for the reading of the Scripture and uh, the study of the Word. And we are reading our Scripture each week in multiple languages to remind us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. And so we're blessed today to have Sarah Gomez reading in uh, Spanish and in English. Sarah. I'll be reading from the book of Acts, um, chapter 7, starting verse 54. Um, Start in Spanish and we'll end in English. Oyendo estas cosas, se enfurecían en sus corazones y crujían los dientes contra él. Pero Esteban, lleno del Espíritu Santo, puesto los ojos en el cielo, vio la gloria de Dios y a Jesús, que estaba a la diestra de Dios. Y dijo, he aquí, veo los cielos abiertos y al Hijo del Hombre, que está a la diestra de Dios. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Thank you, Sarah. Is everybody nice and toasty today? Should be by now anyway, if you were here at the first service. My name is John Fox, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today I get to get to uh, preach for you over Acts 7. It's a big passage, 60 verses, and I will not read all of them, um, but before, uh, before I begin, I do want to uh, make an honorable mention to uh, Pastor Aaron for, again, picking me to preach on such a questionable day of the year. We... Uh, uh, if you remember correctly, the last time that uh, I got to preach, it was on the hottest day of the year, right here on the same stage with no canopy, and now we have a canopy, and it's the coldest day of the year. So, um, uh, but, but it's all good. You know, I, I guess this was Aaron's way of breaking the Texas boy into Seattle. So it works out. Um, and uh, Pastor Jason mentioned it, but I also want to just say thank you for all the help on the building. It, it's really great. And last night I was thinking about this. Um, I think we need to think about it today even. But um, this is our last time under the tent. This is our last time on the lawn. This is our last time setting up and tearing down all of this stuff that we've been doing, not just for... Uh, some months out here, but years, for years, the Sound City. And, uh, and that's really a, uh, a great thing to thank God for, that he's provided for us this whole time. He's provided for us this whole time, and I'm so grateful for it. Also, we'll be grateful to be inside where it's a little bit warmer. Um, so, uh, great job on helping out. All the work really did help push us over the hump. Everything's on schedule. Next week, um, we'll be inside. Almost all the work is done on the building. Feel free to Walk through on your way out and check it out. Um, without, I'd like to go ahead and pray and then start the sermon. Lord, thank you for your word and the example that we have here of Stephen. God, may we see his life and uh, see what you've done in his life, especially in this passage, and have it call us to your son to think about him and to, uh, to live for him. We ask in your son's name. 
Amen. So Acts 7. Acts 7 is a very important chapter in the book of Acts. It is one of the most important chapters, I would even say, in the New Testament. And the reason for that is because of what happens here that causes the gospel to go forward into a new area. In Acts 1.8, we see Jesus talking with his disciples, and a key theme comes up, a key, key word, key term, uh, saying that you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Uh, they're often talked about in terms of concentric circles, and that's a good way to think about it, that uh, the gospel message began here in Jerusalem, and the power of the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Pentecost sends it out through Peter and to the surrounding neighbors in Jerusalem as they gather for a Jewish holiday. And now, in Acts 7, we see another groundbreaking moment when the gospel, through Stephen's witness and martyrdom, breaks forward into a new area, into the next chapter. And so not just Jerusalem, but now the surrounding area, the surrounding province called Judea. And then after that, it goes even further and further until we see Paul at the end of the book trying to make his way with all haste to Rome to spread this gospel, spread this good news about this new king who's governing the universe. And um, so the idea of witnesses or witnessing is indispensable when it comes to Acts. And it's indispensable to this chapter. Last week, Pastor Aaron preached for us Acts 6 in this, this uh, really set-up moment where Stephen has been accused wrongly of being a blasphemer. And as he's being accused as a blasphemer, um, it's really in relation to his witnessing as a Christian. And you, if you're a Christian, and me, all have this job as believers, that we are people who at the end of the day, are here on earth to say, but Jesus, have you heard about him? Do you know him? Do you know what he's done? Do you know he is the king of the universe, like Acts is telling us? And, and this job of witnessing is something that I think we all recognize to one degree or another. For myself, I've seen this play out a number of times. There have been a number of episodes on airplanes. Airplanes seem to be one of the best places to be a witness, whether you want it or not, as you're st- stuck to, you know, next to somebody for hours on a plane. And um, I remember one trip a few years ago was, was coming from Florida back to Texas. And I sat down and there was a, sat down in the middle seat, of course, because that's where the, the longest guy always has to go. Um, and there was a guy to my left and uh, a woman to my right. And I sat down and realized that the guy next to me on the left, he was sobbing heard whimpering and then sobbing next to me. And I was pretty tired at this point, and I really didn't want to engage in any conversation. But, um, you know, just kind of had a, a, a prayer for a, as I a breathed, God, please help me, uh, give me the energy. And, and so started talking to him, said, hey, you know, do you need anything? Can I help you? And, and then the, the next two hours were taken up with him telling me about how he is a believer and just experienced his first mission trip down in... Uh, Africa, and uh, shared some interesting stories with me. Also, his deepest, darkest secret that he uh, needed to confess to his wife when he got home. So, 
Um, that's one experience of being a witness. Uh, and there's another one that I think we all probably recognize, which is something a little bit more cold than that. Um, uh, it was actually, I think, good training for moving here, but my, uh, my neighbor back home in a, uh, a townhome we used to live in, uh, I could just never get to him, never get to him. Um, I, I would see him drive in, and before the garage door shut, I would knock on the door because I know he was home, and he would not answer the door. Um, and it was just kind of cold, you know? So um, I think that was uh, good training for up here for me because I have the same experience here with my neighbor. Um, try, to, try to talk to him, and the, the first conversation we have is like, oh, so what do you do for work? I'm like, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And, uh, well, that's nice. Okay, bye. See you later. Haven't talked to him yet. So uh, tried to, but, you know. That's often how the witnessing happens. There's extremes for us as believers. But here today we see a, a real powerful example in the life of Stephen. And it's important that we come to him to, to learn, to see what God's put in the scriptures for us to learn about being a witness like this. And if you're somebody who, who doesn't share the Christian faith, maybe skeptical, then I would just ask you to uh, take a moment and listen. Here's a man who gave his life passively for something he believed in to the core of his being. I think he's worth hearing from. And as we do that this morning, I just want to ask one question and answer it. And the question is this, so not a main point, main question today. What enabled Stephen to be a witness of Jesus unto death? What enabled Stephen to be a witness of Jesus unto death? And so I'm clarifying that this is not just a witness, it's a witness of Jesus and a witness unto death. All the way to the end, as hard as it gets. And this is something I think that we have to know because we must have the same kind of things. And so the first thing that I see in this passage we'll just take them one at a time, is a Christocentric view of the Scriptures. A Christocentric view of the Scriptures. I'll get to the passage here in just a second, but uh, I don't start with a $2 word lightly. I do it because I think it's important, and it really captures what's going on here. Christocentrism, or a Christocentric way of reading the Scriptures, is just a lens we all have lenses when we read things, we hear things, and this is a way of reading the scriptures to where we say, wherever we are, wherever we are, uh, that we can see Jesus in the scriptures. That he's not just in the New Testament, he's in the Old Testament as well, though concealed. And this is something that I believe Stephen firmly understood and believed. And before getting to Stephen, I just want to give you one quote from Jesus to say that this is how he saw himself. It's in John 5, 39. He told the Jews that are the religious Jews um, at the time leading everything, who were very opposed to him. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. It's an audacious claim that Jesus makes that... Um, the Old Testament, thousands of years, many authors over lots of different terrain, essentially composing this much of our Bible, 
is speaking about Jesus. And it wasn't a popular thing for Jesus to say. In fact, it's one of the things that got him killed by the religious leaders, saying that he's the point of everything. But I believe this is what Stephen picked up as Jesus' disciple and saw in the scriptures himself. And, and I'm going to take a little bit of uh, liberty later on to show you a biblical theology of that. But before we do, Stephen here is accused, and he's going to respond to this accusation of being a blasphemer with a, a good biblical theology. He's going to say, what do the scriptures say? I believe those things too. And so we see that Stephen is accused of being a blasphemer in three ways. Of being a blasphemer in relation to God, that he doesn't believe that God is God and God gave his revelation as the scriptures said he did. In relation to Moses, in that Moses is very much a major figure in Judaism, receiving God's law so that God's people know how to live in right relation to him. And then third, that he is a blasphemer in relation to the temple. You couldn't pick three bigger items in Judaism to go after. This is it. God, Moses, and the temple. If you talk against any one of them, it's high treason. And so that's what they're saying is true of Stephen. Stephen, though, responds, and he starts this way in verse 2. Brothers and fathers. So he already puts himself in their same shoes. They're his countrymen. He replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, he, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. Stephen says, you think I'm a blasphemer, but let me tell you, I affirm Moses. I affirm God's revelation to him that if God had not showed up to, Mos- to, uh, to Abraham, if God had not shown up to Abraham, that we would not be here. We are the descendants of Abraham. Furthermore, he goes on in verse 8, and he affirms the patriarchs. He says, it's not just Abraham. It's Isaac. It's Jacob. It's Joseph. All that God did with our, our forefathers, I believe it. So he gives them this history lesson. And in responding this way, he says, I'm not a blasphemer about God. I believe God and how he's revealed himself and the truth he's given to us. Not only that, Stephen says in verse 34 that I affirm Moses. I'm no criminal here. He says in in verse 33, this is what the Lord said to him. Take off the sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come I will send you to Egypt. Stephen says, in relation to Moses, I affirm that God delivered the law to him, that he chose him to lead the people of Israel up out of bondage of slavery. I affirm these things. Moreover, Stephen also affirms the low point in Israel's history, just after Moses here. There's a long 
section on Israel's rebellion against God, starting in verse 37. That this Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received the living oracles to give to us. Do you hear Stephen? He's saying, let me be crystal clear about this. I am no blasphemer. I believe God. I believe how God revealed himself to Moses and the temple. In verse 46, when he starts talking about what God has done through David and Solomon, he says that he found favor. David, he found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. So here I imagine are a group of Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, ruling council of the day, and they have Stephen pulled in before them into the middle of this court. Court is in session. He is on the trial stand, and he is ready to be condemned. He gives a defense for himself. And what he says, I'm sure, would cause most people in the room, if they didn't know him, to say, what are we doing here? This, he, he says everything that we believe. This is as orthodox of a Jew as you could find. What are we doing here today? And so Stephen affirms his belief in God, Moses, and the temple. He is orthodox. Plus one major thing. Plus one major thing. Stephen read the scriptures, these same scriptures that were taught, that maybe he taught to his kids if he had kids, or that he saw other people wearing around in a little box wrapped around people's foreheads or tied on to the braids of their hair or tied on to their robes. These same scriptures are the same scriptures he read and they read, but he's reading them a completely different way. He's reading them Christocentrically. If I could take a little liberty here, Stephen is reading these same truths and giving these same truths in a way that puts the emphasis not simply on the historical characters, but on a promised one to come. This is what he says later on towards the end in verse 52, that they killed your ancestors, though they foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. He says, there's a righteous one. And even at the beginning with Abraham, what we see is that he died died childless, that there's this promise that still hasn't manifested yet. And so Stephen has in mind a biblical theology where he is reading the Old Testament and seeing Jesus. And if I could, real quickly, I'd like to give you a kind of snapshot of what this would look like. Jesus is the promised son to receive the blessing of Abraham that all nations might be blessed through salvation in his name. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, out of all the nations of the earth. No nation now knows me and loves me, even though I created the world and everything in it. And I will choose you to be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the blessing to all the nations with salvation in his name. Jesus is the hope of the patriarchs, that though they died without a land, they will 
be a part of a new kingdom under King Jesus. God comes to the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You will have a land. I will give you a land. And he did, and they lost it through their rebellion. But the bigger picture is Jesus' forever kingdom that will come onto earth. Jesus is the better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who rebelled against him. That's the same thing that happened with Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they hated his gut so much. And then he provided for them and protected them and forgave them. Jesus is the better prophet than Moses as he's the one that delivered the fullness of God's revelation. Moses delivered God's revelation written in stone to the people of Israel. But Jesus comes and he is himself the full revelation of God, reveals himself to us and rescues us from the bondage, not of slavery, but slavery to sin and death. Jesus is the true Israel who did not succumb to temptation, but succeeded at every step where Israel failed. In the... the, Golden calf incident, Israel failed miserably, committed idolatry, and Jesus comes. What does he do? He crosses a river just like Israel. He goes out into the wilderness just like Israel, and Matthew tells us that he went out into the wilderness to be tempted, yet did not sin. Jesus is also like David in that he fought the battle that his people couldn't and defeated Satan's sin and death on their behalf. Jesus is also the better Solomon. Jesus is not just a wise king. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. I believe this is how Stephen read the scriptures. He is orthodox in terms of Judaism, but Jesus. He understands all this points to Jesus. Here's an example for you. Um, I really love anything Tolkien wrote, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, If I gave you The Hobbit, I said, here's one of my favorite books. But before I gave it to you, I cut out Bilbo Baggins from everywhere in the story. (laughs) You would have a heck of a time reading that book. And it's because the central character is missing. It's been taken out. This is how the religious leaders read the scriptures. They missed it. They missed the main character, Stephen is saying. Not only that, that is something that we do as well. I don't know about you, but I grew up in church. I was there three days a week, at least, sometimes five, mowing the lawn at nine years old. Been in church a long time, I feel like, for a a, a not-so-long life yet, maybe. But in all that time, there were only a few teachers that I had that really showed me the Bible is about Jesus. How do you read the Scriptures? You read it with a Christocentric lens because that is the way that the scriptures talk about themselves. I often grew up hearing these biblical stories and examples as only moral icons to follow. The big problem with that is when you really look into them, two things. They're sinful and we are sinful. When you look at Abraham, Okay, let's follow Abraham. Let's be like Abraham, the pathological liar. Or let's be like King David, the adulterer. There are so many examples, not to say that good things don't happen, that they don't do good things and honor God at times, but overall, 
Every single one of them is broken. There's a, a meme that I've often seen. You might have seen it as well. It says this about David and Goliath. If God puts a Goliath in front of you, he must believe that there's a David inside of you. Have you seen that before? That, that, sounds, that sounds like something biblical, but I do not think it is. When you hear that, it sounds like, oh, yes, God loves it when his people are obedient. There's the truth to that for sure. That's not what that's saying. What this kind of meme says, or this quote, this idea, is that there's something of such value in you that God sees it and says, ah, that's what I can't do without. And that is not the biblical story. The biblical story, especially that example, is to say that God's people had gotten themselves into such a horrible mess through their sin that there's nothing that they could do to save themselves. They were cowering in their tents, unable to go outside and face their enemy. So what did God do? He provided a king to come rescue them. He provided a king to come fight their battles for them. When we read the scriptures, we need to read them in such a way that we see that Jesus is the hero of the story and not us. This is, I believe, one of the main things that Stephen had in mind that enabled him to endure this hostility to death. Being a witness to Jesus under death. He knows at the end of the day, life is not about him. It's about Jesus. And so he can freely give his life away. Second thing in this passage that we see that Stephen held to was a conviction of man's broken nature. Now, we've touched on this a little bit already, uh, but we see it pretty firmly here in this next section. Acts seven fifty one. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. When's the last time you talked to somebody like that? That's rough. When I read this, I, I do think this is hard to stomach. It's hard to hear. It's so abrasive. But I don't think it's wrong. And I don't think it's wrong because of a similar message that's already popped up in Acts. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter stands up in the multitude of people and he says this. Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Witnesses, again, key theme. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's not as intense, but it is still a finger in the chest, isn't it? Peter's message is confrontational. And this is what we see about the gospel, that it is confrontational. You cannot share the gospel message 
without being able to say in the same breath, you are a sinner desperately in need of God's forgiveness. Desperately. And so it, it may seem rough what Stephen is saying, but I don't think it's that rough. What is the response to Peter's message? The response to Peter's message is that people repent and 2,000 people believe the gospel. New creations. I think God's heart is such that he would have loved for these people to repent as well. And so we see that Stephen has a certain view of the human nature that is broken. And what we should notice as he's talking about this is that it's not like Stephen saying this is a problem only for other people. When he starts to talk about the patriarchs, he says that our fathers. And when he starts to talk about the golden calf incident, he says our ancestors. Stephen's not somebody who's saying, all you sinners out there need to repent. I don't know what that's like. Stephen says, all of us, all of us, like Paul says, have gone astray. We do not seek God. There is no one righteous, no one who seeks God, no one who does good. Even the people, even the people who love God, supposedly. And that's something for us to think about. Even the people who God has revealed himself to. If there's anyone on planet Earth that should love God, it should be the people that God has revealed himself to. But even that is not true. And I just want to stop here for a second and talk about the the golden calf as this is a, a key example for Stephen in his message. Key example for Stephen. Why does he talk about this golden calf incident? The golden calf incident, as you may know, is that time when God delivered his people out of slavery, brought them into the wilderness and to a mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the words from God written on stone for his people, and his people stay at the base of the mountain. As Moses goes up to engage in what is essentially a wedding ceremony for the ancient Near Eastern day, um, at the same time, at the same time, Moses receives the commandments from God of the covenant that you will be my people, I will be your God. The Israelites are in the camp melting gold to make a golden calf and say, this is the thing that brought us out of Egypt. Everyone bow down to this golden calf that we just made with our gold that we got from the people of Egypt because God said, ask them for gold. This is incredibly backwards. And it's not just backwards. It's a travesty that the problem that Stephen recognizes in the human heart is even the people of God who know him, who he's revealed himself to, even during the wedding ceremony, while the rings are being put on the fingers, are committing spiritual adultery. It's a vivid picture that Stephen gives us the nature of man. Isaiah will say it this way, as he, I think, captures all of it towards the end of Israel's history before deportation. 
And Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, that's the people of Israel, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and fought himself against them. This is Stephen's understanding of the human nature, that we are sick and in desperate need, in desperate need of God's help. And this is something that really, I think, empowered Stephen to endure this difficulty because when you're, when you're in this situation, you have these first two things under your belt. You understand that all of life is about Jesus. It's not about me. And that I will face persecution as a believer. I will face persecution as a Christian. And the people that persecute me, in some sense, do it because they do not understand the beauties of the cross. Then it provides a stability with which to minister to people and to say, I can take it. Jesus has given me everything I need. So one of the key things that enabled Stephen to be a witness unto death for Jesus was his understanding of the human nature. It's perverted and broken. And we need that same understanding. And that's not the only thing. The last thing we see in this passage is that Stephen also had a two-court reality to life. A two-court reality to life. And before I explain that, I'd like to just read this last section in Acts 7.54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not... Hold this sin against them. This is one of the most remarkable scenes in the New Testament. The heavens split, and Stephen, apparently, maybe it's only Stephen, seems like, sees Jesus standing next to the Father. And they can't take it. They consider him a blasphemer, and they rush forward get the largest stones they can find and heave them at him until he's dead. That's court one. I'm sure when it came to Rome, all they heard was that there was a religious fanatic in the Jewish sect who didn't know when to stop talking and got himself killed. That's about as far as it would go for court one. Just the physical reality of it. Just the court in which Stephen sat with 
men who thought mainly in the physical realm. That's probably how it was to the naked eye, but that is not the only way that life is. At least it's not the only reality that Stephen saw. In court two, there's the incredible truth that Jesus stands and reigns and rules over all authorities. In his heavenly court, he has authority over everything on earth. And Stephen, I think, I think that he had a, a real point in his sermon besides just defending himself. He does that. I think he does it well. Proves it. But beyond that, there is a real point to his sermon, and it is that God's leader is always rejected at first and then is accepted the second time. When you look at his examples, you see Abraham. Abraham was rejected by the Canaanites, first thing. Jacob was rejected by Esau, the patriarchs. Joseph was rejected by his brothers who tried to sell him into slavery and kill him. Moses was rejected by the Israelites. At 40 years old, he comes to the Israelites, sees one of them being mistreated as a slave, kills the Egyptian, and then they say, oh, we saw what you did, and you better run. He's rejected. David was rejected by Saul. Solomon was rejected by his brother Adonijah. This is a normal pattern throughout the Old Testament. And it's something that Stephen brings to light here. And I think he brings it to light to say this. You rejected Jesus first. The second time, you will not reject him. The second time, you will accept him. And that is true for Stephen and the religious leaders then. And it is true for all of us now that a part of the gospel message is to say that Jesus is returning. And if you reject him now, you will regret it. Because regardless of what you believe about him and regardless of whatever authority you think he has or what he did, Jesus will return and you will accept him. You will accept him either as your Lord and Savior or you will accept him as your King as a rebel. And so Stephen has a point, and his point is something that these religious leaders couldn't stomach. They couldn't take it anymore. So Stephen dies. I think it's really remarkable the way that Stephen dies, because he dies, he dies in a way that's very, very similar to Jesus. Very similar to Jesus. And there's, there's a couple of reasons out there that people give for why Jesus is standing. One is that Jesus is standing just to say, well done, Stephen. You did it. You have been a servant unto death. You've been a witness unto death for me. And I honor that. I think that's true. There's also another option that Jesus is standing because he's standing in judgment and in the 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 common governance of the day when the judgment was over and everything was done and the final word was given, the judge would stand up in the court to make his decisive vote. And so Jesus is probably doing that. The irony involved is that as these, 
as these religious leaders are on the court one level condemning Stephen to death, Jesus stands condemning them. Thick irony going on. And it really shows us that Jesus does care for his people. Absolutely, he does care for his people. And one of the most remarkable things that at the end of his life, here Stephen, however long he lived, is transformed to essentially having the character of Christ. I want that. I don't know if I could do this. When I think about it, this past week, even as a staff, we've just been talking about the passage and the incredible virtue And Stephen at the end here, and we look at it and say, man, I don't know if I could do that. God has the power. He can do it. He can do it in us. Stephen finishes his final words in three ways. He requests for his spirit to be received. He makes a deep cry, a breath. And he says, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. Those are the exact same three things Jesus did on the cross before he died. There is, however, a tremendous difference between Jesus and Stephen here. Absolutely tremendous. When Jesus finishes his work on the cross, his prayer was, God receive my spirit. And Stephen doesn't pray that. He says, Jesus received my spirit. And the only way that Stephen can say such a thing is because Jesus on the cross prays, God, receive my spirit. God, don't forsake me. He prays in the garden. And yet Stephen here says, God, don't reject me. The only reason that Stephen's prayer is answered is because Jesus' prayer wasn't. Jesus in the garden prays to the Father, Father, please, I don't want to do this, but I'll do it if it's your will. Is there any other way? And on the cross, God, don't forsake me. And Stephen says, don't forsake me. And he's never forsaken because of Jesus' work. So if you today have not believed, then I think the message from Stephen is here. If you have not believed in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection on your behalf, believe Repent, turn from your sin, and believe. And the great news for us as followers of Christ is that regardless of the situation, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the outcome, Jesus will always receive us. There is never a time in your life when Jesus will not receive you. Whatever feelings you have, whatever darkness sits over your life right now, does not mean that Jesus will not receive you. He will always receive you, and so will the Father. And so three points of application that we can see from this. Number one, let's be a people who reads the Bible with Jesus and therefore his gospel in view. When we read the scriptures, we need to look to see Jesus because he's there on every page. Number two, let's be people who freely admit our need for grace because we are all idolaters. If we could freely admit with Stephen in our families, in our community groups, in our broader church meetings, at work with unbelievers, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That's right. How freeing of a 
thing would that be for us to live like that? Not just to repent from sin, but to continue repenting. Number three, let's be people who keep in mind that we are citizens of heaven. And though we are misjudged and misrepresented here on earth, we will be welcomed with open arms by King Jesus. It's a beautiful truth that regardless of what happens in this life, we are always, first and foremost, exiles waiting for a new home and a new kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns. And he will come and he will reign and the earth will be made like heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great truth from Stephen. We thank you for what you've done in his life and in so many other believers throughout history. God, we ask that you would give us such a boldness, such a confidence to be able to speak the same way. Not to do it in a way that is out of place. To lead quiet lives, as you call us to, but at the same time to be bold and not to pull back the message of your son. God, and we know that you have the power to do this by raising your son from the dead, and we ask that you would work your wonders in us. God, we thank you that we don't have to live this life alone, but that you call us to do it in community. You call us to be witnesses of you, not alone, but in community. God, and so we ask that you would cause us to encourage one another and to point each other towards your son, like Stephen has done for us. We thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen.